Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard by Thomas Gray, or as it is more popularly known, Gray's Elegy. So the full title is Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard and it's by Thomas Gray, but we will be calling it Gray's Elegy from now on because it's a, the, the full title is a bit of a mouthful and just most people call it Gray's Elegy. I don't really want to talk about the life of this poet too much. I'll tell you why I don't want to talk about the life of this poet too much. Unlike a lot, you know, he thankfully we've hit a poet who had a kind of unremarkable life he was all right he um perhaps the most remarkable things about this poet in some ways is how little was known of him um so thomas thomas grave was a a poet who who really is what we would call a, a mid 18th century poet some people see him as the sort of greatest poet of the 18th century other than alexander pope so and but he fills a really interesting little midpoint and i think this is one point where he's interesting it's more about the sort of the time he's in and what his poem represents in this time now this is a fantastic poem it's a very famous poem it's a poem that became famous during his lifetime he was um he went to eton college he was friends with some very powerful people including um the, the prime minister the son of a prime minister i think his um robert walpole's son henry walpole and so he had some, you know, while he wasn't from the richest of backgrounds himself, he had some, he had some very sort of well-to-do mates. So he was grew up in Eton. He went to Cambridge. He became a don at Cambridge. He, he taught poetry. So he did what lots of other poets do, you know, taught at university, kind of like I do. So there's nothing too remarkable about his life. But maybe there are some things which are quite interesting. But I don't, I just don't want to go into the details. I know, I know that he went off round Europe with Walpole at one point. This was probably funded by Walpole, of course. And they fell out with each other a couple of months into this trip round Europe, mainly because Walpole just wanted to hang out with high society, and and Thomas Gray just wanted to sort of hang out. He wanted to check out the countryside. He wanted to see all these different sort of natural sites of a natural world, as well as going to sort of the uh, ruins of antiquity and this was a similar thing within his own life um, he also liked liked finding pastures new you could say spending time with nature being away from high society he also liked seeing ancient ruins or sort of old ruins around around the uk as well so what we're going to see when we look at the poem and we, when we look at the historical context of the poem is that he really does live sandwiched between these two great movements of poet poetry so before him we've already mentioned alexander pope but we have the augustans and so the early 18th century poets and the augustan poets who wrote very much in a classical tradition the poems were very intellectual the poems were obsessed with an idea of wit as well not the sort of wit necessarily that relied on puns or words that sounded the same but the idea of using the right kind of image to describe an idea and um and so we we get that from the augustans also the rhyming couplet is a big thing with the augustans and finally with the neoclassical augustans because they're sort of neoclassical poets as well that the influences of poets such as Horace and the um, ancient Greek poets as well, um, but they're also they, they want they want to use tasteful imagery, imagery that is kind of sober, imagery that doesn't take over the logic and the sense of the poem with its own power. 
you could say. Hence why they coined the phrase for the generation of poets before them, the metaphysical poets. If you want to listen to, if you want to learn more about the Augustans or the metaphysical poets, then listen to some of the older episodes of this podcast. Listen to the Alexander Pope episode and listen to the episode that talks about John Donne's The Flea. But we're a little bit after those guys, but we're before the Romantics. Now, I spoke about the Romantics, William Blake, you know, the late 18th century poet. And so some of the other Romantics he started writing in the in the late 18th century and the early 19th century. And so the Romantics all had their themes of um, beauty and nature and the emotional truth of the individual the individual's connection to their natural world, the way that the natural world often lent the right imagery we needed for our internal emotional states, but other aspects of romanticism as well, such as the Gothic, which is sort of presaged in this poem as well. And, and so we find, I think what I'm saying here is that um, with this poem, Gray's Elegy, with his elegy, Gray really straddles a halfway point. There are so many romantic concerns within this poem, the need to sort of get away into nature, to find truth within nature, rejecting high society, even though a lot of romantic poets were still very high society. And um, and also the sort of the ideas of the Gothic as well, the churchyard, the imagery of the churchyard, the imagery that we'll see of the, the owl in this poem. And so lots of romantic sensibilities are there. So how does he how does he represent a halfway point to the romantics? Normally, actually, in his use of language, especially in the way that he rejects the vernacular. So um, we might remember from Wordsworth, but one of the one of the ideas of Wordsworth was to write this poetry of complex ideas in the common tongue in a way that people uh, in a way that common people could understand. And it's interesting that Wordsworth really looked down he liked, I think he liked Gray's concerns, but he, but his main beef was with Gray's idea of 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 language. And in um, in his preface to the lyrical ballads, so Wordsworth um, said that <laughs> Gray, who was at the head of those who, by their re- reasonings, have attempted to widen the space of separation betwixt prose and metrical composition. And was more than any other man curiously elaborate in the structure of his own poetic diction. So he, I guess Wordsworth found that the language that, that Gray used was too artificial, you could say. Not natural enough to convey the nature and the natural lives that he, um, that, that, that are the subject of his poems, the normal lives. So, so, you know, both were concerned with the idea of the common man and the common woman. And both celebrated them, but but in their own different ways. You know, sort of um, Wordsworth went for in one way went for the for the ballad as that proper earthy, um, oral, and you know just sort of um, working class, I guess, idea of poetry. So, or the peasant class, we really we should say at this point, and we haven't quite got into full on industrialization just yet. You know, that's more a concern of the Romantics and the Victorian poets afterwards. So this is a poem about a churchyard. I, I know I, I can explain a lot of this stuff after after I've read the poem, and I'm giving more of a sort of historical background, not in the terms of the poet's life, but in terms of the um, of of the, where the poem sits within the history of English literature, I guess. So the final sort of little thing. Oh yes, but at the same time, Samuel Johnson, the man who who condemned 
um, Dunn and his contemporaries as the metaphysical poets, he praised Thomas Gray's elegy. He famously said, said that the images within Gray's elegy find a mirror in every mind and with sentiments to which every bosom returns an echo. And Johnson famously said that there are sort of two voices in the poem. There are two ways of addressing the, the listener in a poem. There is a sort of public voice and a private voice within the poem. And so uh, before I read this poem, I think that's a really interesting point to make. So I, I haven't done the old, you know, when I prepare the listener for the poem, I haven't done that in ages, especially when I've spoken in previous podcasts about the difference between a painter's mountain and a climber's mountain and then applied those ideas to poetry. I won't go over those again. I've said it repeatedly in a number of the earlier podcasts. You're welcome to go back and listen and listen to them. So, um, I will just say that when we listen to this poem together, because it is kind of a longer poem, it's not as long as Essay and Criticism. Full, that's still the longest poem I've read on this podcast, I think, followed by Spring Day by Amy Lowell. But it's quite a long poem. And um, I would just say, yeah, just listen to it in one sense. Listen out for the listen out for the music of the poetry. If a striking image sort of flares up, then enjoy that image. If sometimes the language seems a little bit convoluted and you don't, quite get what's being said that's fine just carry on we will return to all these aspects of the poem we will look at what he was arguing in the poem and then um we will yeah analyze aspects other aspects of the poem okay so let's just read the poem elegy written in a country churchyard by thomas gray the curfew tolls the knell of parting day the lowing herd winds slowly over the lee the ploughman homeward plods his weary way and leaves the world to darkness and to me. Now fades the glimmering landscape on the sight and all the air a solemn stillness holds save where the beetle wheels his droning flight and drowsy tinklings lull the distant folds. Save that from yonder ivy-mantled tower the moping owl does to the moon complain of such as wandering near her secret bower molest her ancient solitary reign beneath those rugged elms that yew tree's shade where heaves the turf in many a mouldering heap each in his narrow cell for ever laid the rude forefathers of the hamlet sleep the breezy cool of incense breathing morn the swallow twittering from the straw-built shed, the cock's shrill clarion or the echoing horn, no more shall rouse them from their lowly bed. For them no more the blazing hearth shall burn, or busy housewife ply her evening care. No children run to lisp their sire's return, or climb his knees the envied kiss to share. Oft did the harvest to their sickle yield, their furrow oft the stubborn glebe has broke. How jocund did they drive their team afield, how bowed the woods beneath their sturdy stroke. Let not ambition mock their useful toil, their homely joys and destiny obscure, nor grandeur here with a disdainful smile the small and simple annals of the poor. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth ever gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. Nor you, 
ye proud, impute to these the fault of memory over their tomb no trophies raise where through the long-drawn aisle and fretted vault the pealing anthem swells the note of praise can storied urn or animated bust back to its mansion call the fleeting breath can honour's voice provoke the silent dust or flattery soothe the dull cold ear of death Perhaps in this neglected spot is laid Some heart once pregnant with celestial fire Hands that the rod of empire might have swayed Or waked to ecstasy the living lyre But knowledge, to their eyes her ample page Rich with the spoils of time, did never unroll Chill penury repressed their noble rage And froze the genial current of the soul Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen, and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Some village Hampton, that with dauntless breast the little tyrant of his fields withstood. Some mute, inglorious Milton here may rest, some Cromwell, guiltless of his country's blood. The applause of listening senates to command, the threats of pain and ruin to despise, to scatter plenty over a smiling land, and read their history in a nation's eyes. Their lot forbade, nor circumscribed alone, their growing virtues, but their crimes confined, forbade to wade through slaughter to a throne, and shut the gates of mercy on mankind. For struggling pangs of conscious truth to hide, To quench the blushes of ingenious shame, Or heap the shrine of luxury and pride With incense kindled at the muse's flame. Far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife, Their sober wishes never learn to stray. Along the cool sequestered vale of life, They kept the noiseless tenor of their way. Yet even these bones from insult to protect, Some frail memorial still erected nigh, With uncouth rhymes and shapeless sculpture decked, Implores the passing tribute of a sigh. Their name, their years, spelt by the unlettered muse, The place of fame and elegy supply, And many a holy text around she strews That teach the rustic moralist to die. For who, to dumb forgetfulness a prey, This pleasing, anxious being ever resigned, Left the warm precincts of the cheerful day, Nor cast one longing, lingering look behind? On some fond breast the parting soul relies, Some pious drops the closing eye requires, Even from the tomb the noise of nature cries, Even in our ashes, live their wanted fires for thee who mindful of the unhonoured dead dost in these lines their artless tale relate if chance by lonely contemplation led some kindred spirit shall inquire thy fate happily some hoary-headed swain may say oft have we seen him at the peep of dawn brushing with hasty steps the dews away to meet the sun upon the upland lawn. There, at the foot of yonder nodding beech, That wreathes its old fantastic roots so high, 
his listless length at noontime would he stretch and pour upon the brook that babbles by hard by yonward now smiling as in scorn muttering his wayward fancies he would rove now drooping woeful one like one forlorn or crazed with care or crossed in hopeless love one morn i missed him on the customed hill along the heath and near his favourite tree another came nor yet beside the rill nor up the lawn nor up the wood was he the next with dirges due in sad array slow through the church-way path we saw him borne approach and read for thou canst read the lay graved on the stone beneath yon aged fawn the epitaph here rests his head upon the lap of earth a youth to fortune and to fame unknown fair science frowned not on his humble birth and melancholy marked him for her own large was his bounty and his soul sincere heaven did a recompense as largely send he gave to misery all he had a tear he gained from heaven twas all he wished a friend no father seek his merits to disclose or draw his frailties from their dread abode there they alike in trembling hope repose the bosom of his father and his God. Okay, dear listener, I don't know how much of that you tagged along with. It's a poem that kind of follows a few avenues of argument and shifts emphasis a few times as well. So I am going to go over the poem and just really look at what that argument of the poem is and what the structure of the poem is, what the poem is saying, what the poet is arguing, what Gray is arguing. I want to add one little thing in his biographical details because I forgot to say this earlier, but I think it's quite interesting and quite important, which is Gray only published about 13 poems in his lifetime. So he's seen as one of his really important poems of the of the um, 18th century. Some say, you know, just behind Pope in his importance. And yet at the same time, he hardly gave anything. Now, I don't know if that was due to his delicate disposition and his sensibilities, his fear of being mocked, perhaps, or something like that. But yeah, he only gave 13 poems. You can think his, his collected works number less than a thousand lines. So yeah, you could just read all of his poems in one afternoon if you wanted. But let's get back to his most famous poem and what this poem is actually saying. The poem begins with, I mean, an elegy often involves nature. It often involves blaming the dead as well. Also, an elegy is normally written to one person. And so this already is a different kind of elegy because he's addressing the rural dead. He's addressing people that live normal lives, people whose names we don't remember, people who didn't win fame. And so he's addressing those people instead. And in a way, this reminds me of last week, William Blake, and how he was buried in a pauper's grave in Bunhill Fields. And I remember visiting Bunhill Fields with some other poets many years ago on Blake's birthday. And how many people said, oh, you know, we remember you, Blake. And but then someone else said, oh, but we also remember all the other Blakes that died unknown. And I think when they said that, I think they were all saying, I hope someone remembers us. I don't know. But back to this, that's partly the argument of this poem, almost the same sort of thing, all these other lives that, no, they didn't win fame, and yet and yet we can learn from these dead. Perhaps we can learn more from these dead than we can learn from the, the glorious dead, or the famous dead, or the celebrated dead. 
So already it departs it departs from a conventional elegy in the fact that it's not about one person and their special place. It's about many people and the specialness of their place not being special. So the first few, you know, they, they set the scene, the scene in nature, and we certainly get those sort of romantic aspects of the poem there, the way that this, this rural ideal is evoked, and um, these, this gothic sort of quatrain. I mean, some beautiful lines anyway. Um, I love the lines, save where the beetle wheels is droning flight, and drowsy tinklings lull the distant, the distant folds. I love that line so much I can't pronounce it properly. Um, and and late and and so you know so he sets this scene of nature. There's a lovely image of the um, of the of the owl in the tower having a go at the moon for intruding on her solitary ancient solitary reign. And so he speaks about the rude forefathers who sleep beneath the soil here. And that's an interesting line: the rude forefathers. So they are uncouth, they are unsophisticated, and yet they are the people, the forefathers. They are the people who made this place. Um, this is where they sleep. So he's setting the scene. He's introducing us in the first, at least the uh, the first, so the first three stanzas. Um, he he's setting the scene of nature. Then in the fourth stanza, he introduces the subject of the poem, which is the people that are buried in the cemetery. Um, then he says how they will wake no more. And then in the in the sixth stanza. Um, he really touches me with that line, actually, maybe because I'm a father. So when he says no children run to lisp their sire's return or climb his knees, the envied kiss to share. So they won't be brought back. They have not going to return. Their lives are over. They are done with. Um, and he speaks about how, you know, he bigs up the peasants in the next two stanzas about how the, the stubborn glebe, which is the sort of lotted land. It's like a hamlet, the glebe, um, you know, the stubborn glebe was broke and, you know, they, they drove their team afield and in their own little ways, they conquered nature. <laughs> they made nature yield in a proud way when they were alive, but they are no longer alive and the nature has sort of taken them back into its care. Um, and then, yeah, so he celebrates the peasants in the next few lines. He celebrates their work. He celebrates the, the part they played in making, making this place in which he finds such sort of restfulness and peace. And then he moves on to talk about the graves of the rich. So the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power and all that beauty, all that wealth ever gave awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. So death is the great leveller. In many ways, in death, they are the same as all the people that we celebrate. So he mentions all these kinds of tombs, you know. Um, so, you know, can storied urn or animated bust back to its mansion called a fleeting breath? No, it cannot. Of course it cannot. The body within it can't be brought, you know, the breath can't be brought back to it. Can honour's voice provoke for silent dust? Oh, no, it can't. Oh, no, 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 no. Or flatter. I know it's rhetorical questions, but, you know, we get the drift. Or flattery soothe the dull, cold ear of death? <gasps> No, it can't. So, um, again, he, he speaks about their lives. Perhaps in this neglected spot is laid some heart once pregnant with celestial fire. Hands that the rod of empire might have swayed to so someone who might have been a soldier, for instance. Or wake to ecstasy, the living liar. Such a beautiful line. Liar is there, L-Y-R-E. Um, the living liar being the musical instrument, I guess. I mean, the liar, I don't know if that was something that was played by um 18th century peasants and i wonder he's kind of invoking the classical within that line um but we carry on 
but knowledge to their eyes her ample page rich with the spoils of night time did never unroll so he's speaking about their ignorance but then at the same time he moves on the argument now moves on to this different idea which is they are like the people here who says they couldn't have been capable of greatness i know it sounds funny if they were given knowledge if they were educated perhaps if they were born in a more well-to-do household um who would they be so he starts off with with this image of um buried treasure for many a gem of of purest ray serene the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear so treasure lost at sea for many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air there we go so again this idea that actually okay no one really they're not in the city they're far from the madding crowd as he said later in a poem and uh and uh thomas hardy saw that line and said thank you very much mate i'll add that one so yeah he's it's, it's, it's he uses this image because he moves on to say that um some village hampton that with dauntless breast the little tyrant of the fields withstood hampton was one of the nobles that stood against king charles the first um, before the english civil war so some mute inglorious milton here may rest again yeah he's saying all these people could have become this person but they didn't they live they live these different rural anonymous noble lives noble in their own way and then he moves on to talk about power the applause of listening senates to command the threats of pain and ruin to despise to scatter plenty over a smiling land and read their history in a nation's eyes read their history in a nation's eyes is a lovely line it just means everyone knows who you are you are famous um but he also speaks about how actually no we um we, we kind of gloss over a lot of these memorials actually gloss over the, the bad things that these people have done so these great memorials are lies a lot of them so yeah they're not forbade nor circumscribed alone they're growing virtues but their crimes confined forbade to wade through slaughter to a throne and shut the gates of mercy of mankind on mankind the struggling pangs of conscious truth to hide to quench the blushes of ingenious shame or heap the shrine of luxury and pride with incense kindled at the muse's flame so yes they might have done plenty of bad things these people but we have these gaudy busts we have sycophantic verse written for them you know that's i think that's the incense you know the luxury or heap the shrine of luxury and pride with incense kindled at the muse's flame so that's just art that is used to sort of <laughs> celebrate um a horrible leader or a nasty piece of work tyrant and yet uh sycophantic verses written afterwards so you know the incense mid kindled at the, at the muse's flame so he returns so, so there he says it he says no you know firstly what's the point in all these memorials firstly everyone's dead when you all die you're all equal secondly he says um that um you know even these memorials these memorials are lies a lot of these people weren't that mighty a lot of these people did terrible things and that's all glossed over now the history books may say different but when we see their memorials unless we like smash them up or something as, as we sometimes do um then then ultimately um yeah you know it's 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 glossing over it's whitewashing everything that they did you know all of their sins all of their crimes all of their mistakes all of their folly all of their pride so he returns to these uh, rude forefathers now. Far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife. Again, Thomas Hardy saw that line and thought, nice one, mate. But you get the idea. Madding crowds, London, the cities, high society. Far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife, their sober wishes never learned to stray. Along, along the cool sequestered vale of life, they kept the noiseless tenor of their way. That's a lovely line. Now, if we remember... 
Um, tenor can be a few things. Tenor can be sort of obviously music, um, a human voice singing, but it can also it's also used as a sort of way in poetry to to, to describe um, a metaphor, if we remember right. The, the the tenor being the meaning of the metaphor or what the metaphor is referring to, and uh, the vehicle being the image that is used to describe it. So it, it could be meant in either way. I think the tenor aspect. Um, so again, he returns to them. He speaks about their own memorials now. So what memorials do they have? And he says some frail memorials still erected high with uncouth rhymes and shapeless sculpture decked implores the passing tribute of a sigh. You know, these gravestones, they don't look great. There's sometimes there's some crappy poems <laughs> accompanying it. And yet, despite the crappy poems and stuff, it's still, you know, there's the passing tribute of a sigh. He's not going to, he's begrudgingly praising the, the, the whole environment, the person's life and the, the crappy poems <laughs> that surround it. Still make him, you know, still have an emotional response, even if it isn't perhaps for tears that he may cry on reading a true poetical masterpiece. So for those who dumb forgetfulness of prey, this pleasing, anxious being ever resigned left the warm precincts of a cheerful day nor cast one longing lingering look behind um he's addressing now people that that the pleasures of the graveyard the, the certain peace the, the the contemplative peace of the graveyard so um yes we may forget about them for who to dumb forgetfulness of prey this pleasing anxious being ever resigned so they've resigned themselves to it left the warm, warm precincts of a cheerful day nor cast one longing lingering look behind so he's almost talking about the pleasure of church yards that we all have that peaceful thoughtfulness in the presence of death that we may have um and then speaking about the living community that remain as well on some fond breast departing soul relies you know we need someone else there some pious drops the closing eye requires we need someone to cry for us even from the tomb the voice of nature cries you know the tomb nature's all over this poem so we get this idea the grass the mouldering heap as rent as uh, mentioned earlier of, of turf and even in our ashes live their wanted fires um so yeah the, the habitual fires i i like this line a lot the habitual fires um wanted fires wanted means habitual so in their ashes lives the thing that they did every night you know especially when it was cold they made fires all the time so in their ashes we see the evidence of their activity in life um a thing that, that ties them all together um and then he moves on to himself he finishes the poem by addressing himself i don't know he's speaking to himself actually i think because um, a lot of people think he's referring to himself now when someone asks about him you know so for thee, who's mindful of the unhonoured dead, dust in these lines their artless tale relates. So he's definitely called talking to himself. If chance by lowly contemplation led, some kindred spirit shall inquire thy fate. Happily some hoary-headed swain may say. And then finally this other... Before we get to the epitaph on this gravestone, on on his own gravestone, he's, he's projecting this future idea of his own gravestone. He says, happily some hoary-headed swain may say... Oft have we seen him at the peep of dawn, brushing with hasty steps the dews away to meet the sun upon the upland lawn. So they're saying, oh, we saw this guy getting up early, you know, to meet the sun. Um, and then and then it sort of changes emphasis where um, he meets the sun and then the, the, the sort of passage of the sun is described as the same as the passage of someone's life. 
So, you know, happily some hoary-headed swain may say, oft we have seen him at the peep of dawn, brushing with hasty steps the dews away to meet the sun upon the upland lawn. So here we go, we talk about the sun's passage, which really, you know, it's about how the day reflects the life ourselves. This is a conceit we've seen in Shakespeare and so many poets. There at the foot of yonder nodding beach that reaves its old fantastic roots so high. His listless length at noontime would he reach and pour upon the brook that babbles by. Hard by yon wood, now smiling as in scorn, muttering his wayward fancies he would rove, now drooping, woeful one like one forlorn, or crazed with care, or crossed in hopeless love. So yes, this is all these battles that everyone goes through in their lives about how they reach the top and then they kind of, yes, <laughs> diminish afterwards. And then finally saying about how we, 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 we expected to see him there every day and one day he wasn't. And uh, and then, you know, no one else came in his place. And then with dirges due in sad array, slow through the church way path, we saw him born, approach and read, for thou canst read the lay, grey, graved on the stone beneath you, aged thorn. So, yon aged thorn. So, yeah, um, aged thorn, I'm guessing, is an old rose bush. So, um, oh, is there an act? Is there, does it talk about Christ almost, aged thorn? I don't know. So, yeah, we, and then fight. So, they're saying, look at this. If you want to know more about him, look at this epitaph. And of course, the epitaph is just a poem that says nothing about him. <laughs> it says how simple he is. It doesn't say anything about his great achievements. So, much like he's kind of praising the, the rude forefathers of the Hamlet, he's now speaking. The, the epitaph is written for himself. Um, the epitaph is written for. I know. I don't know. I'm laughing, but there's a certain vanity, isn't there? You know, the, the the need to be at your own funeral, the need to write your own epitaph. You know, this it reminds. You know, like when people, we all feel like you know, if we write our, if we stage our own memorials, if we sort of say every song that must be played and almost organise everything that must be done at our own memorials at our request, um, then that's like, um. I don't know. It's like you almost, it's like we're projecting ourselves into it because we really want to be there. We really want to be, we, part of us wants to see everybody crying about us being gone because it can teach us about our own, you know, this is obviously a product of narcissism and vanity so that we can sort of see our own value on everyone else's lives reflected back. Of course, none of us really want this. If we were there actually seeing everyone crying over us, we probably want to say, no, it's all right. We probably would feel distressed and we'd want them to sort of be happy and to get on with their lives. I reckon that's how we'd feel if we were actually there. And we'd want to say that to them. But of course, we can't say that to them because we're dead. And if we came back as a ghost or a zombie to say that to them, everyone would run out screaming. So um, let's just read these final passages. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk about the poem a little bit more. And then uh, I'm going to wander off on one. So the epitaph, he, re he rests his head upon the lap of earth, the youth to fortune and to fame unknown. He wrote a really famous poem, so he was known. Fair science frowned not on his humble birth and melancholy marked him for her own. It's a beautiful line. Large was his bounty and his soul sincere. You know what I mean? About the vanity thing. It's like, um, I don't know, I don't know. I'm being judgmental here, but, you know, this is one of the greatest poems in the world and I'm laughing at the end of it. Um, but, you know, a bit like when Trump said, um, I'm one of the most mildest people you'll ever meet. So anyway, he gave to misery. I love his, this couplet. It's beautiful, though. He gave to misery all he had, a tear. He gained from heaven, was all he wished, a friend. So he has friends of God. Yeah, he didn't achieve much. He was modest in his life. He was modest in, in what he did. He was modest in his goals. He lived a simple life. That's all he wanted. He knew He knew God in life and now he's with God. Um, as said in the final one, no further seek his merits to disclose or draw his frailties from their dread abode. There they alike in trembling hope repose. 
the bosom of his father and his God. So that's how it ends. So this poem, yeah, in in that sense, I mean, I think I've already spoken about it a lot and I'm probably just going to wander off on one, just going through the poem. Metrically, of course, the poem is in iambic pentameter. Um, and so iambic pentameter just has that more thoughtful, slightly conversational but sort of that thoughtful, it, it always carries a more thoughtful aspect to it than something like tetrameter. It, so pe pentameter is the five stress line. If you want to know about meter, I really go over a lot of meter in the opening episodes. Um, listen to the first eight-ish episodes and, and you'll be up to speed, I reckon. So it's written on iambic pentameter. It's very typical of an elegy in that sense. Um, the rhyme is an ABAB rhyme scheme so he differs from the augustan poets in the fact that he doesn't use rhyming couplets but at the same time the, the argument the poem is full of argument uh, clever little conceits and arguments that would have been typical of the augustans and yes the language is quite complex and highfalutin in moment in some moments there's a lovely sense of balance as well um as in the the the, 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 the much like the augustan poets is that each quatrain that's you know four lines is quite self-contained um and indeed even the even though there's not really couplets because they don't rhyme but even the sets of two lines are quite self-contained as well so you know and even the lines themselves there's a sort of lovely balance to them there's normally sort of two images or two sort of ideas within each line they're growing virtues but their crimes confined um i'm just reading random lines here along the cool sequestered veil of life um the with uncouth rhymes and shapeless sculpture decked so if we read each line there's normally sort of two two little subjects in the rhyme you know the subjects objects i'm not sure but um yeah so so there's a balance within the poem i think which shows the influence of the augustans of the metaphysical or not the metaphysical of the augustans and the, the neoclassical poets such as pope and the very kind of neat piece by piece structure of the arguments of the poem as well really speak of the augustan roots of the poem but at the same time this idea of celebrating the land celebrating the poor and the modesty of life and the not the need to not show off i mean the the the, the you know um the augustans were all about showing off <laughs> but in the right way they couldn't be tasteless in how they showed off but they you know they, they were putting their wit out there to be admired ultimately and so this is different. And again, that idea of the two voices of the poem, as in there are many complex ideas within the poem. There is a there is certainly something that a, a slow, careful reading of the poem will yield many treasures. But at the same time, there are certainly passages of the poem that the common listener perhaps can understand the general gist of it. So there is a public voice and a private voice within the poem. The public voice celebrates the um the, the the noble forefathers and the rural ideal and the anonymous dead and the private voice talks nearly near the end when he's speaking about his own death and his own life and his own willed epitaph i could explain this poem a lot more but i'm going to leave it there so it's now time for me to wander off on one i didn't have my recording of rick flair to signify i'm wandering off on one when i wander off on last week so i had to do voice myself and it's very disappointing and my throat's a bit sore this week so i'm glad i've got rick back with me so when i wander off on one which is an acronym woo it means that i've dropped all pretense at academic rigor we are no longer strictly with the poem and i'm just free forming a few ideas before i say goodbye to all of you so rick take it away 
thank you, Ric Flair. Um, I wanted to speak about ideas of death, didn't I, last week? Remember, last week at Jim Blake's a Tiger, I wanted to speak about violent struggle and non-violent struggle and whether we should debate fascists. And I think I put that um, issue to bed forever there. <laughs> In my typical ways, um, but I'm. Uh, but I also spoke about the, the idea of a good death, how a death can instruct us, um, and and I I got inspired about the idea of a good death because of talking about William Blake, who used his final hours of his life to draw a final portrait of his wife, and to thank her, and then to sing hymns until he died for a few hours and that seems like a really good death and the other idea of a good death actually so sometimes there's this idea of our death that can be a gift of a living um, when i read the introduction to the tibetan book of the dead they speak about the death of a particular monk about how they were all there for the death and how important the death was and how good a death it was and I have my own ways of interpreting these ideas, actually, which is we shouldn't hide from death. We should make death part of our life. And I think that's what this poem is about, actually, the idea of going into a graveyard. And I can understand why this particular graveyard inspires the poet, inspires Thomas Gray more than maybe when we we're underneath um, Westminster Abbey, not Westminster Abbey, underneath St. Paul's Cathedral, you know, looking at this grand pimped out tomb of nelson the sepulcher of nelson this giant marble thing so i you know that most people will live an anonymous life and most people will die an anonymous death relatively and 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 that's the life that most and death that most of us are gonna have and there's a peace to be found in this particular churchyard because we're away from fame i mean maybe the peace that's found in a churchyard full of fancy people is that look it's exactly the bloody same the headstones as 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 gray argues himself the headstones might be much more pimped out much more fancy the verse written beneath it might be sort of written by by some sycophantic laureate and there's a greater handling of the meter and more inventive use of rhyme perhaps but ultimately it doesn't matter so even look at the you know they're, they're all the same it's still a bunch of bones under there so there's that. <laughs> so we can learn from the dead in that sense, that we can get a piece from being with the dead that we can't necessarily get from being with the living. But secondly, um, this idea again of a good death. Now, the other one I was thinking of is um, the, um, the great philosopher David Hume. And there's this idea, actually, his his death as an atheist even as well, where, again, there's a famous account of his death and how cheerful he was about his death, even though he didn't believe that he was going anywhere, that he wasn't going to have eternal life or paradise. Um, and him explaining why he was cheerful about his death and absolutely fine with it. So I think that sometimes, actually, that's the best thing to do. Because even, even in this poem, he speaks about like the, the excerpts of scripture that teach us how to die, you know? And so what do we do? Um, I, I, there's, a, there's a Zen proverb, which I really like, and I often repeat it, which is, what do we do when we're feeling discouraged? And the answer is, encourage others. And so sometimes living a good life is not just having a successful life. Living a good life is perhaps going through the most difficult times in life in a way that can give hope to other people. Even if we ultimately fail, the spirit with which we fail, the state of mind that we have when we fail... The state of mind that we have um, when when the worst is happening to us, 
can inspire the living, can can bring richness to the, the lives of those around us. Um, the Stoics were really good at this. The Stoic philosophers understood this quite a bit. They said, you know, that the, the, the one thing you have control over and the one thing that you should be worried about in your life is not your riches, whether you've got a roof over your head. None of these things are under your control. The one thing you have control over and the one thing that you should protect is your virtue, they would say. Now, virtue isn't necessarily like, you know, oh, dearie me, don't wear that frock, darling. It's more like virtue being just the way that you live your life. And I think that's the thing that shines out. So, yes, that's what I meant by by having a good death. Death is definitely one of these difficult times in which we can instruct, instruct other people and give hope to other people. And just by thinking about the living as we die, not being invested in ourselves. I know it's easier said than done, for God's sake. I'll probably just be like, you know, shouting. For God's sake, oh, screw all of you. Oh, don't you dare set foot near that. Um, machine to turn it off, you bastards! Ah, no, I want to die. Now. I don't want to die. Ah. I don't know. I might be like that, but hopefully I won't be. Hopefully I'll be. Um, I'll be. I'll. I'll find a way in my death, as hopefully I'll find a way in my life, because that's important as well. <laughs> um, to, to to sort of bring hope and light to other people. Oh my goodness, that was a bit deep, wasn't it? Apart from the silly joke at the end. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Um, I hope you have a good week. If you want to share this again, if you want to leave a good review, nice review on iTunes, that's very kind of you. If you want to share this podcast in any particular way, you can share it. That would be really nice as well. But ultimately, I am super grateful for you guys for listening to me. And I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to to do something I really enjoy. So hope you have a good week or have a good whatever you're doing right now. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>